Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast. I have found what I believe to be two mitzvot that are in direct opposition to one another. And I've been bothered by this for a while now. And I just sort of concluded, follow one and allow the other one to be followed by the Torah scholars, the more learned. Leave it up to the big boys. But I came across some more texts that made me realize this is not the way. I needed clarity in this area. And let me get into what I'm referring to. When I first began to study Torah, I learned, of course, the mitzvah of to love your fellow as yourself. And I sort of glossed over it. But what I realized over time is that I didn't know what the definitional term of love was. The way I defined love was the way I had been taught through the world around me, through Hollywood. That love is something you feel for a woman when you're single and you see a woman and she's attractive. Or maybe it's someone of the same sex. And whenever you're around them, they make you laugh. You know, it's something that causes them to make you feel a certain way. And when I began to study with Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, who, by the way, is my guest today to help me clarify this, he broke it down. So one of the things he's always done for me is he breaks down everything. And he said, first, how does one love themselves? And that is they only see their positive qualities by default and they justify any mistakes they may make. And how do we by default without Torah training see others? We only see their negative qualities. And he taught me that the way you love your neighbors yourself is that when you meet your fellow, that you see, identify those positive character traits about them. And then naturally you will love them because of those character traits. And over time, I, I really have worked to develop this. You know, one of the things I have to do in my profession is go to conferences. And there you're supposed to mingle with people at the cocktail party before the event begins. You know, be prepared to introduce yourself, give your elevator pitch, pass along your card. Nothing I was ever a big fan of. But I always had colleagues there that relished in that. And so I sort of turned that into a different exercise of meeting someone, asking them questions, learning something about them, some sterling character trait about them. And then after you do that, you just naturally love them. So it's something I've always been this exercise of practicing and trying to refine for myself. And there's another aspect of all this too. We know from the Torah, and I got this from the Palm Tree of Devorah, that the way Hashem interacts with us is the way we interact with others. So if we are only actively looking for those positive character traits in others, then that's what he will be doing to us. In all our behaviors towards other, patience, generosity, all those things, however we act, is the exact way he acts to us. And when you think about Moses, he was the humblest of all men, and he was as big as the Jewish people combined. And when you break that down, it really defines what humility is and what we're aspiring to do, which is he was the humblest of all men because all his concerns were about those of others, their needs, physically, spiritually. And it's because of that humility, they only concern himself with those other people's needs. It created a vacuum that allowed God to enter him. And I've been in those different states, you know, a state where I am totally in that service mentality, trying to help whoever's in front of me, whoever I'm interacting with. And you notice that when you're in that type of state, it's a very joyful, pleasurable state. And I've been in the other state where it's all about me. Why is this person doing this to me? Why are they saying this to me? And it's not a pleasant state. So you can sort of see this as an overall formula for drawing us closer to God. And, and that's what our job is. But here is the other part that doesn't seem to reconcile with this. What about heretics? Jews who are leaders and spread heresy, driving fellow Jews away from Torah and away from God. What about them? And I've never seen explicit mitzvah listed. Rabbi Wolby will be able to answer that for us. But I have seen it definitely hinted at or discussed when you learn about the sin of the golden calf. Because the Jewish people committed this sin, but then when you read the Rashi and you read the 
the Midrash and more details, it was really just the mixed multitude, the Erev Rav, the, the Egyptians that Moses converted to become Jews. And they were really the ones that were creating all the havoc and creating all the issues, getting people worked up throughout that entire period in the wilderness. But we were all guilty of that. Why? Well, for one, when someone becomes converted to Judaism, their soul becomes intertwined with that of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They become connected. We do become one. But what were the Jewish people supposed to do? And the criticism and the reason they're guilty of it is because they didn't stop it. They didn't stand up and stop them from doing that. There was one person who did that. Hur, Miriam's son, attempted to do that and lost his life as a result. And Aaron just tried to placate and buy time. It's very clear condemnation against us because we did nothing to stop it. And there's another aspect of this as well. Not only is it sort of telling us that there is something we're supposed to be doing in that situation, but if you look at the Torah, it's really a roadmap for an individual's life. First, you have Adam prior to the sin. And Adam is described as being able to see from one end of the universe to the other. He's able to see in the future. He saw that King David was going to be a stillborn, but he saw the value in his life. So he gave 70 years of his life to King David. He knows all of Torah. And what is that akin to in our life? Well, that's the same description that's given to a baby in utero. They know all of Torah. They can see from one end of the universe to the other. And then what happens next is Adam commits a sin. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is now incorporated inside of him, creating this confusion of reality that God is everything, God is all there is. And what happens to us when we're born? The Yetzirah is right there at the gate to give us an evil inclination and causing us, as we enter this world, to forget all of our Torah. And there's so many descriptors. When we went through the splitting of the Red Sea, it's it's akin to a, a birth canal. And then the 42 stops in the wilderness are the 42 various challenges that we face, that we hopefully overcome for our personal growth. And then the written Torah ends right before entering Israel, which is basically what's telling us is Olam Abba, when we follow this pathway correctly. But the Torah is also giving us a roadmap of not only our life, but our lives. Because you see when you read like in the Zohar, that there's a lot of the same souls sort of coming in and out of the story. And just as one example, Cain kills Abel. Abel becomes reincarnated as Noah. And then Noah becomes reincarnated as Moses. So here you have the greatest man ever who had to go through three lives to get it right, to fulfill his mission, which means I'm probably that times 10 at least. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because as I was reading in the Zohar, what it was saying is that this Erev Rav that was causing all these problems in the wilderness, that they reincarnated throughout all the generations. They are the Jewish leaders that create problems for the Jewish people throughout every generation. And I've also learned that in the era we are now, the the heels of Mashiach, that the Ararav will gain much power and become leaders in Israel, causing us to go astray. So we have this sort of mission to remedy that problem. But I'm not sure what that looks like, what we do. And I want to share a couple of personal stories too, so you, so you can sort of see why this is something that I need to address. When my wife, who was not Jewish, decided she wanted to learn about Judaism, and she dragged me to this Intro to Judaism class, And the quote-unquote rabbi in this class said that the Torah is not true. It's not factual, but there's truth and morals that we can draw from it. And when she completed that class, she wanted to go through a conversion. Although we know now it wasn't a conversion, but she wanted to go through this process. However, when the rabbi approached me about membership, I almost laughed. No, I don't want to join your synagogue. You just confessed. It's all made up further cementing my position, validating my position that Torah is man-made, Judaism is man-made, I have better things to do with my time than participate in something in this area that's man-made. So that is one example where it had definitely a negative impact on me. And if only we had taken an intro Judaism class by Rabbi Wolby, I would have started studying at the age of 30. And then my wife realized over time, what did I convert to? 
and we now know it was nothing. But she's very connected to the Jewish people, and now she's in an Orthodox conversion process. But as time went on, I began to stay at the age of 40. When I first started learning Torah, shortly after that, a guest speaker came to speak at the synagogue. And this rabbi was talking about this, these ideas that everyone is God. Not we have a part of God's heavenly soul, but we are all God. And he went on to teach teachings of J.C. and saying that his followers got it wrong, but J.C.'s teachings, there was a lot to learn from them. And at the time, I thought it was interesting because I knew so little. But over time, after I met Rabbi Wolby, I began to really delve in and study Torah. And I just sort of forgot about those ideas. Then as we were, he was out teaching our class every Sunday, I found out that they were beginning a book study. A, a book study by this quote-unquote rabbi who spoke you know, several years earlier. I remember the things he said. And at this point, I knew they were totally inaccurate. They, her, they were heretical. And I did some research on this person and found that he spent the majority of his time studying Eastern religion, studying Buddhism, JC's teachings, the New Testament. And I realized that a, a Torah scholar knows that you could spend your entire, every moment of your life studying Torah and not complete it. So why would you waste your time studying these other religions? So I warned my class and I told them, know who this person is before you decide to go engage in this book study. And over time, some of the class, my classmates were going into that book study afterwards. And they told me, Dan, we want you to come in there. You would have some good insights to share with the class. So I decided to go to this class. And one of the people there that was leading it was a disciple of this person that had spoken many years ago and wrote these books. And there was people in the room, fellow Jews, that were for the first time in their life, much later in their lives, wanting to learn about God. And then I listened as this rubbish lie after lie came out of this person's mouth saying the saying things teaching them things that were going to lead them further away from Torah further away from God their mission in life as a Jew mitzvot don't matter the sages yesterday were primitive men we are much more advanced now we should refer to God as a she so we're not acting as sexist all these ideas coming out and I, got, I got, became so flustered while I was sitting in there listening to this. I didn't know what to do. It was just too much coming out at once. And I was, I was visibly getting shaken. So I excused myself. I said, my daughter needs me home. I have to leave. I got in my car and I was, I was shaking. I was so upset. And when I got home and really thought about why are you emoting like this? You can't, I couldn't even control myself. I, I realized that it was like being in a battle scene with your fellow Jews, and you're watching them get slaughtered, but I lack the Torah strength, the Torah wisdom to protect them. And so I had to flee like a coward to save my own hide because I didn't want to see and listen to any of that anymore. So I, I, I sort of see both sides, but I don't know exactly what is the proper path. How do you reconcile these? So Rabbi Wolby, thank you so much for coming on today. And I am certain, as always, you will answer this question for me and all the listeners. Well, Dan, thank you for that amazing introduction. And thank you again for inviting me onto your amazing podcast. It's a true honor. It's a true, distinct pleasure to be here with you. So your question supposes that we have two mitzvahs, in effect, the mitzvah of loving our fellow as ourselves, total, complete love for every Jew on one hand, However, we also have the bad Jews, the Jews that are professing and teaching and disseminating terrible ideas, espousing to the masses heresy. And those people we have to fix, we have to castigate, we have to reject, and we have to maybe even hate. And do we love them? Do we hate them? Do we rebuke them? How do we deal with the people that are the heretics and the purveyors of heresy? So I think to get clarity in this discussion, I think we have to start from, from ground zero. So your first assertion is that we have to love every Jew, every Jew, including the sinners. That is maybe not so clear. The verse tells us, of course, the most famous verse in the Torah, arguably the most famous verse in the Torah, you have to love your fellow, now the word re'acha, which means your fellow, appears in many other places in the Torah. 
of things that of how you have to relate to your fellow Jew. Now, many places in the Talmud, the Talmud says the word re'acha, which means your fellow or your contemporary. That doesn't just mean your co-religionist. It may mean, under certain circumstances, someone who is living as a fellow Jew should live. And therefore, there are certain mitzvahs that are applied to re'acha, re'acha mitzvos, your fellow in mitzvos, meaning it's your fellow Jew who's up to a certain standard. But maybe if it's your fellow Jew who sadly is not up to a certain standard, they may not fall into that category. However, according to my research, I don't believe that the Talmud makes that distinction in this particular verse, you shall love your fellow as yourself, it doesn't say your fellow in mitzvot. It doesn't disinclude all the sinners. And in fact, I have some evidence to say that even egregious, heinous sinners are also included in this mitzvah. The Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, on page 45a, is talking about some of the worst people in Jewish history. The sinners that have committed heinous and grievous sins capital crime sins with witnesses and testimony and have gone through the cross-examination of the court and are found guilty and are going to be executed. These are obviously the worst people of our nation. The people that were so guilty, even though they were warned not to do it, they have such hatred of God that they committed the sin and are now facing execution. But the Talmud's talking about how exactly do we execute them. That's the portion of the Talmud that deals with the precise protocol of execution. And it has various ways to do it. And it tells us that there's two ways to do it, but because he is your brother and you must love him, you must find an easy and pleasant way for them to die. Try to minimize their pain. And it quotes the verse, You should love your fellow as yourself. And that, to me, is conclusive evidence that even someone who's a terrible sinner, think about it, is there anyone worse than that? Someone who commits a sin? that has within it capital crime and with witnesses and testimony and all that and are actually guilty and they're going to be executed, you still have to love them. And therefore, the Talmud says, well, if we have two ways to kill them, both of them maybe are technically okay, we have to opt for the more pleasant way of them of them going. We have to be humane and loving and gentle with them, even though they're such grievous sinners. So that's point number one. However, there is a verse in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, it talks about a mesis. A mesis is maybe the worst criminal, maybe outside of murderer, that's a discussion, is, is a murderer worse? A masis is someone that tries to get other people to do idolatry. And we read the verse, this is in chapter 13, verse 9 of Devarim. Lo sovalo, you should not give in to him, you should not listen to him, you should have no pity upon him, you should have no compassion for him, and you should not shield him. And the Talmud deduces these five exclusions Thusly, quoted by Rashi. Rashi says, what does it mean? You should not give in to him? It means you shouldn't love him. The word soveh is similar to the word ahava. And says, and says Talmud, quoted by Rashi, the verse tells us, you should love your fellow as yourself. This person, the Mesas, you should not love. And also you shouldn't listen to him. And also all the laws of how we process capital crime are going to be different for him. We hide the witnesses. We try deliberately to find guilt. The protocol that typically tries to favor exculpation is discarded. So there is a certain criminal in, in Jewish life that would indeed be excluded from the general category of people that we must love, and that is someone trying to get other people to do idolatry. Now, whether or not someone who tries to get someone else to do any sin, are they included Maybe yes, maybe no. It's not so clear. If, if let's say, God forbid, I decide, you know what? I'm going to be the person who's going to try to get other Jews to not have a mezuzah in their door or to violate the Shabbos So whatever it is. I'm obviously a terrible person. I am what's called a chote umachti. I'm a sinner who makes other people sin as well. Terrible thing. But is it included in the category of me trying to get other people to do idolatry? I don't believe so. So I'm going to accept your first assertion that even someone who's a terrible person trying to get other Jews to commit terrible sins, someone like that, terrible, 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 maybe even executable in certain circumstances, but we still have to love them. And therefore, your question is, well, if we have to love them, how do we rebuke them or how do we relate to them? How do we admonish them when we are supposed to love them? Hold that question aside. I want to add one more point. The Ramam tells us that there are certain people 
that the Almighty will prevent them from repenting. They're not going to be aided from heaven in repenting. And one of them is a chote umachti, someone who sins and causes others to sin. So yes, I agree with you. Someone who causes other people to sin is one of the most terrible things a Jew could be. Now, important to note, if they do repent, they can indeed be forgiven, but they're not going to be aided in repentance. And the idea behind that is, just as an aside, is that we don't want someone to cause other people to sin and therefore other people to have to face retribution and punishment by God after they die and the ringleader who repented goes straight to heaven. That's an unnatural result. And therefore, he's not going to be given any help from God. And normally to repent, you need to be given a little nudge by God because when someone's heartstrings tug at them, when someone's conscience is awakened, that's really God nudging someone, awakening someone, stirring someone towards repentance. But someone who is such a terrible sinner, sins that cause other sin, they'll have to create that awakening and that inspiring from within. They're not going to be aided from above. So yes, let's acknowledge someone who does that is a terrible sinner, but we still have to love them. But I want to contest your other assertion that we are commanded to not love them by admonishing them. And not only do I want to reject that assertion, I want to say that it's the exact opposite. It's not that, oh, we must rebuke them, and therefore how could we love them? It's the exact opposite. It's only because we love them that we can rebuke them. If we did not love them, we would not only not be able, not be effectively able to rebuke them, our rebuke would not only be non-efficacious, we would also be prohibited to do that. You can only rebuke someone and try to nudge them closer to God if you love them like yourself. Let's explain. We read in chapter 1 of Perkavos, Hillel Omer, this is Hillel, the great hero of Jewish history, You should be a disciple of Aaron. He's instructing us to follow Aaron's lead. Ohev Shalom, someone who loves peace. Verodev Shalom, someone who pursues peace. Ohev Esabrius, someone who loves humanity. Umekarvan la Torah, and brings them close to Torah. Aaron is the prototype of someone who wants to draw Jews back to Torah. Someone who wants to restore the Jewish people, the Jewish person, the Jewish hearts, connection to God. And how did he do it? Ohev Shalom, loving peace. Rodev Shalom, pursuing peace. Always a priest, loving humanity. It's all about love. Loving peace, loving people, and only then can he be the one who brings Jews back to Torah. And we see throughout Aaron's life, he always sees the good and the potential and the redeeming qualities of the sinners that he's trying to help. In fact, there's a shocking Ramban. You spoke about the sinners of the golden calf. Korach is another terrible sinner, and he tries to mount a mutiny and insurrection against Moshe. And right at the beginning of that story, we read, Vayishma Moshe. Moshe hears the claims of Korach. Vayipol Alpanam. He falls on his face. And there's a very short, but I think it's a shocking Ramban on that verse. This is chapter 16, verse 4 of Numbers. Why does it say, Vayipol Moshe, Vayipol Alpanav, that Moshe fell on his face? After all, the rebellion was mounted against Moshe and against Aaron. So Aaron also should be falling on his face. Why is only Moshe responding thusly to Korach's insurrection? So the Ramban says, Aaron, with his ethics and with his holiness, did not respond at all in this entire dispute. And secretly, he agreed with Korach. Korach says, I'm a better candidate than Aaron to be the high priest. And Aaron says, you know what? He's right. He's right. And the only reason why I'm the high priest is because Moshe, as per the instruction of God, appointed me to this post. This is a shocking window into how Aaron views one of the worst villains of Jewish history. Korach is trying to get the whole nation to rebel against Moshe. A terrible sinner. One of the worst villains of the whole Torah and of our history. And what does Aaron say? Aaron says, you know what? I see where he's coming from. <laughs> he, has, he has a point. He's always able to find the silver lining, the justification, the righteousness even, of even the worst people. And by the way, even Moshe, when Moshe tries to stamp out the rebellion again and again, Rashi points this out in, in Parshas Korach, he tries to reconcile. And Dathan and Abiram, Dathan and Abiram, who are the co-conspirators, which by the way, the Kabbalists tell us are going to be reincarnated in every generation to be the thorn on the side of the Jewish people, what does Moshe do? 
again and again. He tries to reach out to them. He calls out to them. He says, I'm willing to reach out to you to reconcile, even though I could just so easily ignore you and let you go in your sinful way. So here we're being told how to relate to the sinners. And even the ringleaders, oh, hey, shalom, love peace, pursue peace, love humanity, and then you can bring them, draw them back to Torah. Criticism is not just about getting someone. It's about reeling them back in and restoring their latent relationship with God, and that can only be done if you love them. And I had an interesting idea. In this Mishnah, Hillel tells us, we should be a disciple, a student, a pupil of Aaron. What's Aaron? Love peace, pursue peace, love humanity, bring close to Torah. So Aaron is going to be our teacher, and we are the disciples. If you look later on in Pirkei Avos, chapter 5, I think it's Mishnah number 19, it talks about being a disciple of some other great Jewish leader, namely Abraham. And it tells us that to be a disciple of Abraham, you have to have three qualities. But if you look at that Mishnah and you compare it to this Mishnah, we have a disciple of Aaron, disciple of Abraham, but they're different. Here, we're told to be a disciple of Abraham. And what does that mean? Love peace, pursue peace, love humanity, bring close to Torah. That's the disciple of, of Aaron. When it talks about being a disciple of Abraham, it compares... Abraham to the anti-Abraham, and that is Bilaam. And it says like this, whoever has these three qualities is a disciple of Abraham, and whoever has the three opposite qualities is a disciple of Bilaam. Bilaam's the anti-Abraham. So the question that I had is, wait a minute, if there's a certain format, hey, you could choose, who do you want to be your master? Do you want it to be Aaron or someone else? Do you want it to be Abraham or Bilaam? That's the format. So how come when it talks about Aaron, it doesn't tell us who the anti-Aaron is, it doesn't say, hey, be a student of Aaron and not Dathan Nabiram and not Korach. Find someone who embodies the opposite of Aaron, who doesn't love peace, who doesn't pursue peace, who doesn't love humanity, who doesn't bring them close to Torah, and give us the contrast. We know a contrast is very effective. If I want to convey something, I say this and not that, not that, and yes, this. So, not Bilaam, and yes, Abraham. Three qualities, three characteristics, disciple of Abraham. Three qualities, three characteristics, disciple of Bilaam. Do the same thing for Aaron. That was my question. And I think the answer is that to truly harness the Aaron method of loving peace, pursuing peace, loving humanity, being close to Torah, you cannot denigrate any person. Don't even compare Aaron to the anti-Aaron. The second you get in the mindset of finding who's the bad guy to avoid, you're already edging out of Aaron's territory. Even Korach. Korach, again, the villain of all villains. Someone's trying to undo the whole nation. Terrible person. Aaron says, you know what? Uh, I kind of see where he's coming from. He, he does have some righteousness to him. So I think, again, this is to respond to your question. Loving people, yes. Rebuking them, criticizing them, reeling them back in, only precisely because we love them. And by the way, it's not only Aaron. Maybe Aaron is the exemplar, is the prototype of this. But even Abraham Abraham was the one who brought all the sinners back to God. He's the original one who's bringing Jews back to God, or bringing Jews, not Jews, but bringing humanity back to God. And what did he do? What was his approach? So again, we find in the scripture, so again, we find in the sources, maybe that there's two different approaches. And I think this gets closer to answering your question. The Talmud tells us that Abraham, when the verse says, Hashem, he called out in the name of God. He called out in the name of God. What does that mean? So it says the Talmud, the book of Sota, page 10b, every person, Abraham got that person to acknowledge God. And how did he do that? He fed them, gave them food, gave them drink, and the people were satiated. And they said, okay, this is an amazing trip. Thank you so much, Abraham. The idea of appreciation and gratitude is almost inborn. Someone gives you a free meal, you got to say thank you. So they go to Abraham and say thank you. He says, why are you thanking me? Did you eat my food? You ate God's food, the God of the world. Thank him. And that was the way that he used to reel people, to nudge people out of idolatry. That's the Talmud. Again, with love and with kindness and with generosity and with hospitality. Yet, the Rambam, in chapter one of the laws of idolatry, it's a very important chapter if you want to understand Abraham and, and how he became what he became. It's a beautiful chapter just to read it. It gives the whole history, the backstory of idolatry and what Abraham did and how he did it. But he tells us that after Abraham developed his theological philosophy, he started doing debates, and he started doing polemics, and he would gather all the people of town, he would go to the town square, and he would challenge the idolaters to debates, and he would shatter the idols. And in these debates, 
he would triumph over them with the, with the strength of his reasoning. And so much so that he became a public enemy and he, they tried to assassinate him and he had to flee. And he kept on fleeing westward till he arrived in Israel. But every place that he arrived to, says the Rambam, gather the nation, gather the people, and convince them to join monotheism. So to me, this is interesting. On one hand, we see publicly he's debating with the heretics. And he's pointing out exactly the flaws of their argument. But with individuals, he's treating them with love and just kindness. And using that as a backdoor, a subterfuge, to get them to accept God and the principles of faith. So I think what this tells us is that whenever we see heresy, we have to nuke it. We have to torpedo it. But the individual, the sinner, we have to love them and we have to reach out to them with love. The Talmud gives us a great story about Rabbi Meir, one of the students of Rabbi Akiva, one of the great sages of the Mishnah era. So it says that he had terrible neighbors that would always harass him. This is from the Talmud of Brachos, page 10a. They would always harass him a lot. So he says, you know what? I'm, f- I'm fed up with these people. I'm going to pray. And he started praying that they die. So his wife tells him, why are you praying that they die? Is it because you understand the verse in Psalms, chapter 104, Yitamu chataim, let the sinners, or the sins, be expunged from the land. Does it say chotim? Does it say sinners? It says chataim, which means sins. Don't pray to get rid of the sinners. Pray to get rid of the sins. So what should you do? Pray that they repent. And you know what? Once they repent, you can fulfill the end of the verse, Urashaim Odeinam, and there's no more sinners. Not because they're dead, but because they've become non-sinners once again. So he hearkened to his wife's advice, and he prayed that they repent, and indeed, they repented. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, in the name of his teacher, Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, we're not allowed to hate the wicked. Because a wicked person is like a treasure chest that is bursting with gems and diamonds, but also has a rotten fruit in it. So just because it stinks and it's wormy and it's got maggots in it and it smells bad, it's putrid, doesn't mean that you could negate it and not recognize the value that it has. But I want to switch that around. Suppose if it was a chest full of wormy fruits, but it had one diamond in it. So even if someone is completely corrupt, yes, we acknowledge the corruption. Yes, we acknowledge the putrid nature of those, of those fruits but we still have to view in totality that there's something very valuable here. And I think only with that attitude, where we see the goodness in other people, and we see the potential of the people, and we see the ability under certain circumstances for them to return back to their roots, only then can we be effective in our criticism. So again, your principal assertion, I think not only is it not a conflict, but it's only because we love someone that we could help them out of their sinful ways. And in fact, in the mitzvah itself, where it tells us that we have to love our fellow man, that same verse, two verses earlier, or maybe the previous verse, in Leviticus chapter 19, it tells us, You should surely rebuke your fellow man. It's a mitzvah to critique the misdeeds of others. In fact, if you don't critique them, you're complicit. However, the Talmud tells us, just as it's a mitzvah for you to say something that will be heard, so too, it's a mitzvah for you to not say something that will not be heard. So there's a mitzvah for us. One of the 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. A mitzvah to us, for, for us, when we see a sinner, to rebuke them, to admonish them, to criticize them, to point out how they're heading in a wrong way. Yet, the Talmud tells us, wait a minute, if you want to criticize someone, you better make sure that it's effective. You better make sure that they listen. And if not, it's actually a mitzvah to not rebuke them. Am I a prophet? How am I supposed to know if someone's going to listen to my criticism. Maybe they won't listen. Don't they have free will? So what does it mean that I have to figure out, okay, should I rebuke them? Should I not rebuke them? Well, if they're going to listen, it's a mitzvah of the Torah. It's a binding mitzvah for me to do it. If they're not going to listen, it's a sin for me to do it. How do I know? Moreover, the Talmud in Babmetzia 31a tells us that we have to rebuke someone even a hundred times. Simply put, that means that if we do it once, it doesn't work, we'll do it again. This is the definition of insanity, no? To try something again and again, expecting different results. That's a contradiction to me. On one hand, we're told, if, if it's not effective, don't say it. On the other hand, we're told, say it even a hundred times. Never stop saying it. If you said it once and twice and three times and ten times and ninety-nine times, clearly it's not effective. And if it's not effective, then you shouldn't be saying it. So why are we telling us you should say it a hundred times? Should I be persistent even when it doesn't work? 
I thought when it doesn't work, it's a mitzvah to not say it. So there's a very deep point over here. There's two kinds of criticism. There is effective criticism. That's a mitzvah. And that's a mitzvah to do even a hundred times. And there is ineffective criticism. That's a sin. What this is revealing to us is a very deep point. When someone criticizes another person, invariably, they're going to have a very strong reaction. There's going to be a backlash. They're going to get angry. They're going to get defensive. They're going to say, are you any better than me? You're going to cause alienation. The only way for criticism to be effective is if they know a thousand percent that you love them and you have their best interests in mind. And therefore, the mitzvah of criticizing someone is only because you love them and you care for them and they're your brother and you want to help them and they know that. That's effective criticism. When it's done in a way that's not going to inspire this backlash. And you know what? If you want to do this correctly, you have to be clever and industrious in doing it. And sometimes you realize that if you just want to convey a message and you just give it over in one piece, in one fell swoop, that may be too much for them to handle. And that will fall into the category of ineffective criticism. So you know what you do? You take your message and divide it up into a hundred small little pieces. And slowly over time, even a hundred times, you give them little parts of the message. You're conveying the criticism in a way that is effective, and it's done in a hundred small little bite-sized pieces. And then, when you do it that way, you love them so much, so intensely, and you're so careful not to tread on their feelings, not to hurt them, and to not get them defensive. And it's established to all that you love them. And you do it in this artful way, that they don't get hurt, and they don't get taken aback, and they don't lash back at you, and they don't get angry, and they don't start hating you. Then... It's a mitzvah. So it's not about effective, meaning that it will work. Obviously, the person has a choice to accept it or not. But there's two ways to convey it. There's the effective way and there's the ineffective way. And sometimes the effective way requires you to do it a hundred times because you have to be so delicate and artful in how you convey this message. And I think, in fact, in our Parsha, Parsha's Devarim, we have a master class of how to give effective rebuke. Parsha's Devarim starts off with Moshe speaking to the nation. And Rashi tells us that he's speaking to them words of critique, words of rebuke. He's about to pass, and he's giving them criticism for their behavior. But how does he do it? In a very gentle and subtle way. He only hints at their sins. He doesn't say, this is what you did. Here's the evidence. You did this and this and this and this. Terrible, terrible things. He just talks about different cities that are not real cities, but are names of cities that do evoke the sins of the Jewish people's past. So he's doing very gently, very artfully, very subtly. He's veiling, he's concealing the criticism. And he's doing it only before he dies. And Rashi tells us there's four reasons why you can only critique someone before you die. If you do it too much earlier, you may breed alienation. And also, Rashi points out that it's after he conquered their enemies. The Jewish nation, they had enemies who wanted to kill them all. And Moshe won those wars. And only after he won those wars and it became abundantly clear to everyone that he has their best interests in mind, only then did he have the credibility, so to speak, to effectively give them critique. Rashi even says something very striking. Rashi says that had Jacob, Moses learned this lesson from Jacob, and had Jacob critiqued his sons earlier, he was worried that he would lose them. And Ruvain would go join Asaph. That's how delicate we have to be with criticism. Ruvain, the, the eldest son of, of Jacob, had he been critiqued in Jacob's lifetime, before Jacob was on his be- deathbed, he would have said, I'm done with this. I'm going to join Asaph. It's kind of astonishing. To do criticism correctly, you have to love someone. You have to care for them more than anything else. You have to be motiv- motivated solely by their best interest. I have to do it in such a way that they know that message for sure. My grandfather, Blessed Memory, used to tell us a story about Rabbi Israel Salanter, the first, I would say, modern effort to try to bring Jews back to Torah. And he actually moved to Paris. He was the greatest sage in the land. And he moved to Paris, which at that time had no religious Jews. And he, he moved there because he wanted to go reach out to our lost Jewish brethren. And the story goes that he went to the dock, and there were Jewish workers in the dock working on Shabbos. So he befriended them. And he spent months befriending them. And he would tell them, you know, after a month or two, they really loved him. He's such a clever guy and so intelligent. And so what an interesting person. 
He would say to them, well, maybe you could do this work that you're doing on Shabbos, this violent Shabbos. Do it in this way. Tie the knot in this way. So that way it will only be a rabbinic violation, not a Torahitic violation. And slowly, 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 with love and patience and, and care and concern, he was able to nudge them a little bit closer to the ideal. That's what it's like to be like Aaron. Love people, love peace, pursue peace, love humanity. And then you have a chance at bringing them close to Torah. So again, to answer your question, how do you reconcile loving your fellows yourself and rebuking them? It's only because we love someone, only once that is abundantly clear to all, only then do we have a shot at trying to get them back to Torah and to criticize them in a way that will be indeed effective. One, I love the response. I love that pathway. You know, I said at the beginning, it seemed like two contradictory sets of instructions, and I would just pursue the love your fellow as yourself and leave the other to the experts. And yes, you reconcile that you have to love your neighbor as yourself, and you do have to be an expert. You have to be an expert on not only your Torah, but how to approach it, which you sort of broke that down. Like even though when I was in that room listening to all those lies coming out like a machine gun, I could have just maybe stopped one. I could have just explained one, why God is not referred to as a she, why God's referred to as a he, why the sage of yesteryear were not inferior prehistoric men. You know, I could have just got one of those. So I I appreciate that. So are you saying then that during the time of the sin of the golden calf, there's one group and we can't separate them. They were converted. We're all connected. And and maybe because I I believe one of the most widely stated mitzvahs in the Torah is to love the ger, to love the convert. And maybe there was a lack of love there to go do anything about it. But it, it sounds like if they had gone and and used this and, and loved them and rebuked them in the right way, that sounds like even if they had gone off astray and, and persisted, that at least the entire Jewish people would not have been culpable in that sin. Is that accurate? Yeah, for sure. And once they join the people also, they, they get grandfathered in, so to speak, and they become part of the collective whole of the nation. And therefore, we rise and fall you know, with them, whether we like it or not. And since that is still occurring today, it sounds like the, the way we, we remedy it, the way if that is a, the, the current challenge right now is for me personally, all of us, to do what we always do, which is to love your neighbor, improve your Torah knowledge, try to be a good example. I have found more people have been influenced by just observing Dan as an atheist and Dan now. Even people say, we don't understand what he's doing. He's joined some sort of cult, but we like cult Dan a lot more. He's a better person. I do want to bring up one story in the Torah that is always, I get it, but it definitely was not, I don't know if it falls in the category of love your neighbor, but it's the story of Pinchas. I, I saw that he loved the Jewish people and he saw what was happening. He wanted to stop the ongoing decimation of the people through this plague so he kills Zimri, but I don't know if he was necessarily loving Zimri as himself as he put him on a shish kebab with the Moabite woman. So reconcile that for me a little bit. So a few things. Pinchas, first of all, Rashi tells us that Pinchas is attributed back to Aaron. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Akoin. He's a grandson of, of Aaron. And Rashi tells us the reason why he, we have to tell us Pinchas' grandfather it's because don't think that Pinchas was different than Aaron. Even Pinchas, who's acting with zealotry and ferocity, even Pinchas still has that Aaron root within him of loving your fellow as yourself. But Pinchas, I think, might be something that maybe we could strive for, but it's really not for us. In fact, the Talmud tells us that what Pinchas did was something that was not halacha, meaning he did something that was correct, but if someone asked the court, should they do what Pinchas did or not, they would tell him, don't do it. It's almost like voluntary. So Pinchas might be a different, rarefied class on his own. But there is an interesting line that appears in, in Jewish literature that says, I think it's kind of funny also, it says that there are people that like to behave like Zimri, but want reward like Pinchas. What that means is that there are people who are drawn to zealotry, but not because they're as holy as Pinchas, but because they like to fight, or they like to you know, like the tension, or they like the conflict, or they're just rusty people. And 
they're they think that they're holy like like Pinchas, but really that they're a sinner like like Zimri. So I would say Pinchas might be in a class of his own, and that's not universal behavior. What he what he did, and also what he did is was a very was a very specific case with very specific uh, criteria. But I have an interesting question for you. This is a question that I've been mulling over. I think it's related to to our discussion. I have some answers, but maybe you know maybe you could shed light on this. So. The verse tells us when the Jewish people left Egypt, they left chamushim. And Rashi gives us two explanations as to what that means. Either chamushim means that they are armed, they left armed, or they left with only 20%, one-fifth, so to speak, of the Jewish people. 80% of them died in Egypt. And they died over the, over the plague of the darkness. So the Egyptians can't feel, oh, you know what, they died as well. So what that means is that there's 80% of the Jewish people in Egypt who didn't want to leave Egypt and wanted to stay there. These are the sinners, right? What did they experience over the preceding months? They experienced miracles. The first uh, eight plagues, and they met Moshe, you would imagine, and they saw this whole rolling, rumbling ball of the Exodus already uh, underway. So my question that I have, you know, we have around today, around 80% of the Jewish public are distant from Torah. It's around the same number. There's, there's about 20% of, of Jews worldwide are, are observant. I don't know the exact numbers. I'm not a demographer. I don't know what the exact demographics are, but there's a very large chunk of our people that either they don't believe in God or they do believe in God, but don't believe in Torah or do believe in Torah, but don't actually observe Torah and do this not because, you know, everyone's imperfect. You know, everyone's, everyone's has sins, even Moshe has sins. But there's a difference between someone saying, hey, I want to do as best, the best as I can, but I'm not perfect versus someone who says, this is not for me. I don't keep Shabbos because I don't keep Shabbos. There's a difference, right? So my question is, you know, if our mission is to love every Jew and our mission is to try to rebuke them, obviously in a way that they know that we love them or we're trying to help them because we are trying to help them. I believe that the best thing for someone in their life is to connect to God. And the way to do that is via the Torah. So when, when I'm trying to help someone reconnect to their heritage, in effect, I'm, I'm giving a starving person food. I'm giving someone who's dying of thirst water. That's, in fact, how the Torah describes itself. It's, it's water, it's food, it's, it's oxygen. I'm giving oxygen to the soul. I'm trying to help someone, facilitate someone getting oxygen. But you would imagine that Moshe himself tried to do the same thing. And for 80% of the people, he was unsuccessful. So the question that I have is, if we're facing the same challenge that Moshe had, he also had a recalcitrant 80%, maybe not recalcitrant, but 80% who didn't buy what he was selling, and he was not able to convince them, how do we imagine that we'll be successful at reaching the 80%, so to speak, of our nation, of our brothers and sisters who are distant from God and from Torah? Is that a good question? Are we doomed? Maybe it's helpless. So the, the question is, because if we know that no man will ever be as great as Moses, so why will we pursue doing something that he failed at, which is a great question. Well, we, we should pursue it because... That's what God's telling us to do. But isn't that the role of Mashiach? That to to help bring that 80% back? Yes. Okay. So you're saying that we're just trying to lay the groundwork or trying to do as much as we can to enable that. But ultimately, there's going to be someone who has such charisma and such power and so influential and so persuasive. And the situation in the world will be such that people will actually listen and adhere to what he's saying. Yes. And I would say that we... By following the mitzvah, as you laid out, of loving your neighbor as yourself, that loving the the Jew regardless of whether they're religious or practice some form of idolatry or whatever it may be, but we're setting maybe the groundwork by loving them as ourselves, which is going to open them up for in that era of Mashiach when there's more uh, evidential proof, I guess, to wake them up from their slumber and have them flocking to Rabbi Wolby's podcast I'm flattered. I'm glad you point out the thing about Pinchas. That made me think about Abraham. Abraham's natural tendency too was told on the side of Hesed of love. And so the the test for him to have to kill Isaac was God seeing, can you go against your natural way for me? And so when I was think, sitting here thinking, what is my natural way? Before Torah, all I did was my interests were politics and economics and all I savored was getting into a political de- debate where I could just tear someone's argument apart. And I would always win when they jumped to the next subject. And that's what I relished. So my natural way is to go into battle. 
Growing up, I was in fight after fight after fight in the schoolyard. So I need to be going against my natural way, the way I've been going. And or 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 Abraham did that as well. You have to do that. You have to eviscerate the arguments while letting the person who's doing the argument save face. So maybe you could create that straw man, or you could do it on your podcast when you're not embarrassing anyone. You could eviscerate, totally destroy the argument, but it's not done in a way that people are embarrassed. So maybe you can have both. Abraham did both. Abraham blazed the trail for us, and, and, and he, did, he did both. He was with the individuals that he encountered. He gave them kindness and hospitality. But then when we're dealing with the issues, we have to nuke it. We have to torpedo the heresy. I wanted to give, if I can, the two answers that I heard to my question of how could we be successful if Moshe failed. Please. So I asked this question to a, a group of rabbis that I'm part of a forum. I, I legitimately did not know the answer, what they, what they would say. So one of them said something very powerful. He said that Moshe in Egypt did not have Torah. It was before Mount Sinai, right? So even Moshe, the most talented, successful Jew, greatest prophet, humblest man, ever, even Moshe, if he's not armed with Torah, is less of a potent force than us small people armed with Torah. The fact that we have Torah, that's a superpower that we have to connect Jews to God that Moshe didn't have. And therefore Moshe was unsuccessful as nothing he could have done by force of his personality, even by force of his prophecy to get those 80% to do it. Whatever, whatever he could have done, he did do. And he was unsuccessful. But we have Torah, and he didn't at that time. And therefore, with our Torah, we can reach even those 80%. That's awesome. Thank you. I feel like I just have so much clarity. I felt like there was just like this tension here. And now I, I know exactly the path forward. So I appreciate so much you coming on and answering that question for me. Thank you so much for having me. This was a total joy and a pleasure. Have a great Shabbos and look forward to catching you again next time. Thank you, Rabbi. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.